Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 2, where we left off last week. I'm in the wrong book. All right, let me find it. 2 Corinthians. Let's do 2 Corinthians instead. Chapter 7, verse 2. This is Paul's appeal to the church that he loves, that has rejected him, um, that he, who he is, is pursuing as a pastor, but more than that, as, as their spiritual father and as the, the one Christian on earth that probably loved the Corinthian church more than anyone else. He's writing them this letter and he says in verse two, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. For as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true, and his affections are greater for you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything." Jesus, we want to receive your word as your church. We want to receive whatever you have for us and that the grace of God towards us may not be in vain. And as we read of Paul's confidence in the church, we read of their, their zeal and repentance. Uh, we want to be more than observers in this. We want to be participants in this. We are the same church. We are one body with these repenting saints, and we are one body with the Apostle Paul who has this confidence in the church. He, and and we, we believe you, Lord, in the things that you've said, the things that you've given us in Scripture, saying that you will be faithful to finish any, every good work that you've begun. And so uh, we trust in you. 
Um, we are here seeking your face, and we pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is a it's a hard passage to follow, but you got to remember you're reading someone else's mail. Paul wrote like this. He wrote to people about stuff that they knew that we don't. So there's some things that we're just not going to quite figure out in the same way that the Corinthians did. But what we can see is the heart of Paul towards this church. And we see a heart that is, is uh, reflective of a greater heart. Paul, as their father, looks like God the Father pursuing his lost children. And, and as we see this church that has taken a turn now, Paul received news from Titus about their repentance and about their, their zeal to change some of their wicked ways. We're part of that church. And so, you know, as, as I prayed, we don't want to be just observers. We want to be participants. And we see uh, the heart of a father in Paul. And we see uh, really the joy of repentance. Um, we see the the one who's rejoicing to see the prodigal return. So you remember uh, that there has been a breach of relationship in some way between Paul's missionary team and the Corinthian church. A lot of ink has already been spent by Paul defending his team against whatever accusations the Corinthians had laid against them, explaining how much work they'd done on behalf of the Corinthians. He's told them how they've served them, how much they loved them. And now Paul just makes this tender appeal in verse 2. He says, open your hearts to us. Look, we want back in. We want relationship with you again. And he reasserts his, his innocence in the next few verses. He says, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. So there's no reason for you to, to shut the door in our faces. We're not doing you harm. We have your best interest in mind. He says to the church, you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. And Paul truly believed that as Christians, they were one. Something he writes a lot about, but you need to pause sometimes and, and realize like he believed what he was writing. He actually believed that Christian unity was not an imaginary ideal that you can work towards. He thought that was actually the state of things, that they were actually one body. They were united together in Christ by the Holy Spirit and ought to live in light of that reality. And so Paul, like an encouraging parent, he tells them, I'm proud of you. He says, great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. At the end of the chapter, he says, I'm confident in everything for you. I'm confident in you. He, he uh, says that their, uh, the changes that have taken place in the Corinthian church have, has given him hope and joy when he most needed it. He said, I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation." Now, that kind of phrase, that should be familiar by now if you've been tracking with us through 2 Corinthians, right? You know Paul has made a lot of these things clear already. It's just that now he's phrasing it not in an argumentative way, not in a, look, guys, come on. And like, can you get with me on this? Now he's making an appeal from the heart. It's an emotional appeal rather than an argument. He's less defensive now. He's not fighting them. It's like he spent all his ammunition telling them how wrong they've been. He's laid out all the facts on the table uh, about how much he's suffered and about how much he's served them. And he's saying, okay, okay, but really, like, when we get down to this, I love you guys. Please open your hearts to us. You've gotten this far in the letter. You should be seeing things pretty clearly now. Know that I love you. Know that I'm proud of you. Know that I have optimism that other, uh, other people and future generations of the church won't understand how optimistic I was about the Corinthian church. So op open your hearts to us. Now, when you read through like Old Testament Bible stories, 
You know, we're kind of trained, hopefully, to see Christ in those stories, types and shadows of Christ. You know, you see Joseph sold by his brothers, persecuted, then raised up to power and authority to save the whole world. And you think, hey, that reminds me of some other person I've heard about. You know, like there's those parallels there that we're, we're supposed to see. And we, we see foreshadowings of Christ in the patriarchs and the, the good kings of, of Judah and the prophets. And then we get to the New Testament and we meet Jesus. And, and we see that now that he's come in the flesh, we sort of turn off that part of our minds and stop looking for types and shadows of Christ. But guess what? He's still there to be found in passages like this and in people like Paul. Now remember, I've said this almost every week in 2 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians 11.1 is the grid through which we read the life of Paul. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we're supposed to look at Paul and then keep on looking. You know, we look at Paul in the midground and then look at Christ in the background as a much larger figure. Um, these verses from 2 Corinthians 7, they're about Paul. We see how Paul felt about things. But don't you see that the spirit who inspired him to write these words is expressing truths from a heart much greater than Paul's? Paul is making his appeal, yes. But in chapter 5, he said that when God makes an appeal, he does so by pleading through Paul. It's not wrong to look to Paul in chapters like this and see Jesus in the same way that you would through the Old Testament saints. And look what we find. Paul writes, open your hearts to us. Who else does something like this? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Revelation chapter 4, there's a church that shares some unflattering similarities with Corinth. The church of Laodicea. And Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Paul wrote this before John wrote Revelation, so you wonder if Jesus borrowed from Paul, or did that, can that happen? Is it plagiarism? Is it, Paul, Paul wanted the church to welcome him, but this concern was of secondary importance to him. And in Ephesians 3.17, Paul says that the reason he prays for the church is so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. It is Jesus who says, open your heart to me. But what's more, it's also Jesus who says, you are in my heart to die together, to live together. What Paul writes in verse 3, you know, we sang the words this morning, my name is written on your hand, my name is graven in your heart. To have Christ dwell in your hearts, that's extremely important, of course. But what's even more important is that Christ holds you in his heart. To know God is phenomenal. It's the greatest privilege and pleasure you have in life. But to be known by God is even greater and more essential. He holds you to die together, to live together. Again, what Paul is hoping in reconciling with the Corinthians and being united to them, it's only a shadow of the union that we have with Christ. Yeah, Paul and the Corinthians, they would get along again. That's good. It, that's reconciliation. But it's just a shadow of actual reconciliation where God and man are brought together in Christ. That's the rest of the story. In baptism, we've been buried with him in his death. We died with Christ. In resurrection, we've been raised with him to newness of life. God has done this, and we believe it. And we see the heart of God displayed for his church through Paul, who is sharing in the heart of Christ here. And of course, Paul shares in the sufferings of Christ as well, which 2 Corinthians uh, writes a lot, tells us in no uncertain terms. In verse 5, he says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Um, we don't know which ones, which, which sufferings Paul is talking about here. 
You could look at Paul's history of persecutions and pick a few examples and probably get pretty close to what he's referring to here. He had regularly been persecuted. Uh, He wasn't some fearless superhero either. He went through his missionary journeys terrified. The book, uh, you know, the the, the verses uh, before this and previous chapters, it makes it very clear. Um, He was scared. He doesn't shy away from telling people that he was scared and even despaired of life, not even sure if he was going to make it. Uh, If he did, you know, if he had hid behind some sort of false courage or presented himself in a way to show that he was never sad, never scared, never at a loss, then he wouldn't be able to glory in the goodness of God the way he does in the next verses. Because he says, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. The comfort came from God, when Paul, who Paul calls the God of all comfort back in chapter 1. By the way, the, the way God comforted Paul was through people, specifically through Titus in this case. And it's important not to forget that this is God's standard practice. He plans on blessing you. He plans on comforting you in your affliction. He is near to the brokenhearted. Uh, he, he plans on, it is his intention to bring you encouragement when you are downcast and discouraged. And his method of doing this is through other people. Now, most of us, some of us, would wish this wasn't so. Uh, Many who are downcast and discouraged would rather receive their comfort straight from God. Like, skip the middleman, just hook me up to the IV. You know, like, don't give me other people here, I'm not in the mood. Uh, But but God, God cares about the process. Don't isolate yourself from God by refusing comfort from his people. And don't reject the comfort of God by removing yourself from the people that he's going to comfort you through. When Paul writes in chapter 1, he says, The God of all comfort comforted us in our affliction, that we may be able to comfort others. And the way we see here now in chapter 7, how did God comfort Paul? He said he was comforted in all affliction, but how? Well, by sending him a guy named Titus. How wonderful it must have been for Paul, going through one of the worst seasons of his life, to have a guy like Titus show up with some good news. Now, it's interesting. There's two uh, distinct meanings associated with the name Titus. If you look up the name, the first thing that usually comes up is is title of honor. Titus was an honorable Roman name that a man could be proud of. But then there's another school of thought that the the word people, you know, go deep and look at the roots and everything like that. And most Bible dictionaries agree on uh, on this, that Titus means nurturer uh, or literally a nurse. And I like this especially because we see that this is what this honorable man did for Paul. He was a comforter who nursed a heart-sick Paul back to health. And he brought comfort in two ways. One, by showing up, his presence. Paul says it wasn't only by his coming, but it was the the news about Corinth also. So he, he came, brought comfort, brought good news, even more comfort. And the way Paul writes about this, it's, it's kind of funny. Because Titus came to Paul and he told him, Paul, yeah, they got your letter. They, they definitely got your letter. Um, hated it. Really hate it. They're, they are devastated by it, in fact. Uh, they got the letter. There was weeping, gnashing of teeth, sackcloth, and everything. I don't, I don't think some of those old church ladies are going to recover. They thought you were nice. And, and they got your letter. They are, they are truly heartbroken. And then Paul says, 
Last <sighs> some good news. That that really makes me happy. I am I am really glad that's I, that better than I could have hoped for. Honestly, that's what he says. He says news of the Corinthians mourning made him rejoice even more. What kind of pastor is this guy? It seems strange. The next paragraph explains his thinking. You might not share it, but it'll explain it. Okay, verse 8, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. He found a little twinge of, you know, maybe. But I don't. I, I got over it, and I'm happy. I'm happy that it was so mean. For, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. I'm not sorry. But the sorrow of the world produces death. A little reminder of the timeline might be helpful. Paul had visited the Corinthians. It did not go well. He had vowed not to visit them again when they were in that state of conflict. You can cross-reference chapter 2, verse 1, if you want. So instead, instead of coming for a sorrowful visit, he wrote a sorrowful letter. A letter that made the church sad. This was written between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It was, a so it was sorrowful in two ways. It showed the broken heart of Pastor Paul, but it also didn't hold back from correcting the Corinthians in their faults, leading them to grieve for their sins. This was the purpose of the letter, and this is why when Titus brought news of the Corinthians' earnest desire, mourning, and zeal, Paul says he rejoiced. Because they could have just crumpled it up and thrown it in the, in the trash, right? And written back another angry letter, and just stood their ground in their sin or whatever, and then Paul might have wondered, are they lost? Was all the work in Corinth just worth nothing? There was no repentance, and Paul says, instead, he has reason to rejoice. The reason's given in verse 9 with crystal clarity. He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Once more, we see Paul represent an even greater Savior who chastens every son whom he receives, who tells us that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Repentance is a joyful thing, but before it's joyful, it hurts like anything. And I think this is really important for us to see that repentance, which is turning from sin, is an action that is preceded by an emotion. Or rather, it's a life change that comes from a heart change. That might be a better way to describe it. The scripture talks about the sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. Okay, there's, there's the sorrow of the world that produces death. Esau mourned for the loss of his birthright, but found no place for repentance. So that sorrow wasn't the same thing as repentance. Judas had regret of his decision, but it was not a godly sorrow producing repentance leading to salvation. On the other hand, we do not believe that repentance is only a change um, in behavior. It's not just sorrow, and it's not just checking certain boxes and saying that you're acting good. Repentance, full biblical repentance that leads to salvation, isn't only a sterile moralism, kind of Pharisees following rules. It is a changed heart, is a tender heart towards the God who loves you. That's what repentance is. Paul rejoices, not just that the Corinthians were sorry. He says that's not, that was not the point. It's not just the emotions. But he's also not just happy that they fell into line. He's happy that they were granted godly sorrow for their sins that then led to a full repentance leading to salvation. It's a whole package. 
He, he's happy. Not just that they decided, okay, we'll follow the rules, whatever. He's happy that they're zealous. They have earnest desire and they are mourning for their sins. This is sorrowing in a godly manner. It, it, this, is to, um, this is supposed to characterize our attitude towards sin, especially our own. Sorrow and even shame are proper responses to sin initially. The prophet Jeremiah rebukes the people of Judah because they had forgotten how to blush for their sins. They weren't embarrassed. They felt no shame. They were shameless. There was a complete absence of shame. There was a boldness in sin. And because of this, those people could never mourn for their sins. And true repentance and the salvation it brings remained out of reach. The Corinthians had this internal, uh, heartfelt, emotional reaction that was far beyond just a legalistic response. It was a godly sorrow that led them into the fullness of repentance. Again, Paul isn't just happy that the Corinthians are sad. It's like, ha, your turn. <laughs> you know, he's not, he's not rejoicing because he heard from Titus all the evidence uh, of, um, you know, the, the people that were mean to him getting their just desserts. That's not what Paul's doing. He's happy because there's evidence of genuine heart change taking place in the church in Corinth. And now he's, he's going to remind them of the good things that come about as a result of this godly sorrow. He says, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. In, in Acts chapter 3, very beginning of the church, right? Church's first birthday, Pentecost. Peter gives a sermon. He says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance leads to times of refreshing coming from the very presence of God. That's just the way it works. Paul is listing all the refreshing growth he sees in the Corinthians since their repentance. He says, look, at you're, you're diligent now. What diligence it produces. You are working hard towards righteousness. What clearing of yourselves. They are righting the wrongs they had done, apologizing, reconciling, reversing the wrongs that, uh, by doing what's right. He says, what indignation. Again, it wasn't just the behavioral change. It was behaviors that followed a heart change. Instead of loving sin or excusing sin, they hated sin. They were indignant about how they had allowed compromise into their church. This is a step in the right direction. It says they had fear. I believe this is talking about, or at least including, the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 8 verse 13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. That seems to be the direction they're going. There is an ungodly fear, which we're told perfect love casts out fear. But then there's a good fear, which is the dread of doing anything that would offend the Lord or cause distance to grow between his heart and yours. That fear of the Lord. It's not just respect, like some people will say. People will tell you fearing God is, is having that respectable reverence for, that encourages you to be polite to Jesus. Like that's not what the fear of the Lord is. What the Corinthians are doing is in response to the corrections they had received, and they are walking in the fear of the Lord with diligence, removing all evil from their lives. What they're doing is what, what Paul would write uh, you know, in Philippians, where they're working out their salvation with fear and trembling. 
They're taking things very seriously. And Paul rejoices to see that kind of thing in the Corinthians. Still in, in verse 11, he says, what vehement desire and zeal. These are strong words for strong emotions. But this, this is a proper response to sin. Why would we take sin lightly when we know the effects that it has on us? You know, there, there, is, there may uh, begin with sorrow or, or that blushing kind of, of shame, but sorrow is only godly sorrow in so much as it leads to this kind of vehement desire and zeal towards repentance. The goal is not for you to sit and feel bad. That's why Paul says, I'm not rejoicing just that you're sorrowful. That's so not the point. The point is that you stand up and walk in the right direction. Repentance is to be done with vehement desire and zeal. We make a mistake in thinking that sin can be handled softly. We know it's dangerous and we know sin kills, but for some reason most people believe the best way to handle it then is to negotiate with it. We make trades, or worse, we reason with it and excuse it and try to come up with a reasonable solution to manage it. That's not repentance. That's, there's no vehemence there. There's no zeal. The, you know, there's strategies for changing behavior, some of which might appear effective, but it's not the same as this zeal, uh, zealous, vehement, passionate repentance that gets the job done. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Uh, the sin in you is not to be managed. We don't negotiate with terrorists, right? And, uh, you know, take, take the weapons you've been given and then go ahead and take, take a little bit of pleasure in murdering your sin. It's okay to get worked up a little bit. It sounds like the Corinthians arrived there. They were vehement, zealous. You cannot have vehement desire and zeal and then be wishy-washy about the things that are cutting off your air supply, that are separating you from Christ. Now, it's interesting. There's a couple places in Scripture where zeal is used in, in rather violent ways. Um, the Zealots were a political, rebellious group. Simon the Zealot uh, was one of Jesus' disciples. They wanted to overthrow Rome by force. Can you just appreciate the boldness of that kind of stupid plan real quick? Okay. Like, um, but, they, you know, it was just a few uh, good old boys from Judea saying, like, I got a knife. Like, let's go. And they... they they wanted to fight off Rome from the Holy Land. Now, when it comes to your sin, be as stupidly optimistic, please, as this. Oh, yeah, like an empire run by Satan is bent on destroying my soul, my besetting sins, secret addictions, the root of bitterness, the unforgiven, unforgiveness in my soul are all rendering God's grace ineffective in my life. Yeah, let's go to war. Let's go to war. I've got a sword. Let's go to war. Now, there's another place where the word zeal is used about Jesus. You've probably already thought of it in this discussion. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's a verse from Psalm 69, verse 9, applied to Jesus when he goes to the temple and starts flipping out, you know, flipping tables over. He makes a whip. The whip wasn't for the tables. Okay? Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The Corinthians had been shown by this sorrowful letter. They're saying, hey, there is sin in your church. There's sin in your lives, and you're not dealing with it. And they identified the sin, and they started making whips. They saw that they were being destroyed. The temple was being defiled. And so they rolled up their sleeves and started flipping over tables, and Paul is cheering them on. Be zealous for good works, including the good work of repentance. He goes on, what vindication. 
In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. This is more of what the beginning of the verse called clearing yourselves, that they reversed course. They showed themselves to be clear. Now it says in this matter, and it's obvious that there's specifics here that Paul is careful not to mention again. Um, he mentioned he who sinned and the one who was sinned against. Um, he's talking about a specific situation, and we just don't know what it is. Some people speculated this is the guy in 1 Corinthians 5, and the matter at hand was how the church had failed to address an unrepentant sinner, sinner who was having an illicit affair. Um, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. He had already addressed that situation in chapter 2 and was more critical on how tough they were on the guy. Um, this matter in chapter 7 is probably some other issue that had come up, and we just we don't know what it was or whose fault it was. Um, but there had been a real issue with real people involved, real sin, and real repentance. And the repentance was more than sorrow. It was more than regret. It was a changed heart that led to action. They had new strategies for battle. They took sin seriously, took righteousness seriously, and they took the reputation of the church of God seriously. And so with zeal and vehement desire, they vindicate themselves in the matter of whatever sin they had been struggling with and failing in previously. This is a Corinthian success story. And you can see why Paul is so thrilled to hear the news of this godly sorrow that led to repentance. Titus brought him very good news. And Paul is like this father waiting for the prodigal son to return home, worried about what the Corinthian kids are getting themselves involved in. Titus goes out from this father figure to, to find out how the prodigal is doing, if he's run out of money yet, if he's enjoying the pig food. And instead of bringing back news that the son is continuing in his self-destructive patterns. He brings the news that the son is washing his hands, getting a real job, eating people food again. And he hasn't yet been reconciled with his father. He's wondering, probably like the prodigal, if such a thing is even possible. But the true heart of the father is much more concerned with his son's well-being. He is thrilled. And he says, I'm confident for you. That's how he ends the chapter. I'm confident for you in all things. This is just the start. Once more, it is Paul that shows us the heart of God in this passage, happy to see sorrow in its rightful place, doing its proper work, seeing repentance done in the best of ways, so that times of refreshing will follow. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm going to be honest, the letter that made you all so sad, I actually didn't write it just so that the one guy would get his act together. Um, I didn't write it to defend the guy that had been sinned against. I wrote that letter to you so that you could know that I love you. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. He wrote that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you so that you could see how much we really care about this church. Now we know it was a, a corrective letter. There would be some who, when corrected, would be tempted to say, he must not love us anymore. Look how mean he is in this letter. But any Corinthian with a shred of wisdom or familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures would be able to see the opposite. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Or Job chapter 5, Job writes, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Psalm 141, verse 5, the psalmist says, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. The wounds that Paul was giving were proofs of his friendship and of his faithfulness. Read through to verse 15, starting in verse 13. It says, Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, 
And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For if anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. (laughs) That's a way of saying all the good things I said about you to Titus. Yeah, it turns out they were real. Um, But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. We get this picture here of what happened, kind of. Uh, Paul sent Titus to the Corinthians during a time when the Corinthians weren't saying real nice things about Paul. And after Paul had already sent them a letter that had the potential of breaking their hearts, Titus could have been walking back into a fight. Instead, he found a hospitable church that was in the process of clearing themselves of charges brought against them in Paul's letter. Now, Paul says something interesting here. He says that he had boasted to Titus about the Corinthians. Considering, consider this, uh, that while he found need to write them strongly worded letters, this does not mean that he was talking bad about them to the rest of the team. (laughs) Quite the opposite. And even though All we get are these letters that have a a lot of hard words for the Corinthians. There's a bigger picture of Paul's estimation of this church, one that sometimes baffles us with its optimism. He told Titus all the good things about Corinth. Before he sent Titus to the church in Corinth, he had had a long list of how how great they were, of how all their their finer features, which don't invite letters from the apostle, like 2 Corinthians. But... You know, verse 16 kind of sums it up, how he was confident that Corinth would come around and see things his way eventually. He says, therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. That is ridiculously naive to anyone just reading First and Second Corinthians. With our limited scope, you know, our limited perspective, we think that's optimistic, to say the least. It's more than a little disorienting. We read First Corinthians. We're seven chapters into 2 Corinthians. Any of us reading Paul's words to this broken church would be hesitant to say, Corinth, I have confidence in you in everything. The mind, you know, leaps to all the whatabouts, you know. What what about the rejection of the apostles? What about all the little factions and cliques in the church? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. What about the, the crazy, like, speaking in tongues during the service and interrupting the sermon and that stuff? And then the, the, the gluttony at potlucks. And then the, uh, you know, I mean, the, the list just goes on and on and on. And he's like, oh, but I'm confident in you in all things. He's confident that they're going to come around, that the Lord will preserve his church. Now, 2 Corinthians has its share of corrections, but now Paul just says, I have confidence in you in everything. He has more confidence in them than any of us would. And, and I would suggest this as well. I think, I think Paul, as an imitator of Christ and as a father to the Corinthians, as one representing or foreshadowing the love of God in this passage, I think Paul has more confidence in the Corinthians than the Corinthians had in the Corinthians. And the story about the prodigal, if we're just going to keep that parallel line running, when the son is inside of his boyhood home, thinking he'll get a job as a servant, who has more confidence in the happy ending of that story, the father or the son? It's the father. We think like sinners, because that's what we are. And we think, at best, Corinthians is, or Corinth, the church in Corinth is a mixed bag, at best. And when we examine ourselves, we think similar things. I've got some good habits. I've got some things I struggle with. No one should have confidence in me in everything, but someone does. There is one who rejoices in your repentance and who knows the depths of your heart and loves you the same and knows not only that sin is forgivable, but that sin is defeatable. And he rushes to meet the returning prodigal with arms wide open.
God has more confidence in the one who repents than any sinner has in themselves. As a repenting child of God, the Father has more confidence in you than will ever make sense to you. The call then to you is to welcome this message of repentance like the Corinthians welcomed Titus and even the the sorrowful letter. The message of the gospel has been given to you and it includes a serious call to examine your lives, your hearts. And, And since it was first preached in Galilee, it began with the call, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Rejoice in your repentance like Paul rejoiced in the sorrows of the Corinthians. Yes, weep for your sins with a smile on your face. Uh, Learn to blush again. And then don't sit down. Flip some tables. Don't settle for sin or negotiate with the terrorists. With zeal and vehement desire, cut off the hand that causes you to sin and pursue the God who raises the dead. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice. With, with all heaven, like Paul rejoiced, we rejoice in this freedom that we have in repentance. We rejoice that there is a place for repentance, that there is times of refreshing from the presence of God that are available to the one turning from sin. I ask you to bless this church that you have made, that you are making, that you love, that you are preserving, that you will lead to heaven. Bless us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Amen. You are sent.